Welcome to Zero to CEO, where seasoned entrepreneurs will teach you how to succeed. I'm your host, Jason Sherman. In today's episode of Zero to CEO, I have with me the co-founder and CEO of Bitmark, Sean Moss-Pultz. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Jason. Glad to be here. Cool. And, and today's episode is very relevant, the state of the digital economy. Everyone has been seeing NFTs in the news for the past couple of years. And uh, it's it's been an up and down roller coaster ride, right? I mean, there's a lot of uh, there was a lot of hype in like the metaverse and like Facebook changed to meta. What are your thoughts on, you know, I know we're talking about other things today, but I'm curious what you think about was Facebook's decision to change to meta and their kind of laser focus on the metaverse. Was that a good idea? Uh, I actually think it was a brilliant move, but it was also their only move. They're squeezed out of mobile. And mobile, of course, is the future. That's where all the traffic, that's where all the eyeballs are. They have no play because of Apple, because of Google. And so this is like an existential bet the company move that probably only somebody like Zuck could pull off. So um, I can't say I'm rooting for them. I don't really like Facebook, but... Uh, I, don't think, I don't think anybody does. <laughs> right? <laughs> but it's a... <laughs> I got to give them credit for it. I mean, it it is an absolutely courageous move. And it kind of boosted the NFT market for a short period. I mean, I was in the middle of launching an NFT when that happened. And then all of a sudden the market crashed, of course, crypto crashed, NFT crashed. Like it went for like 90% devaluation. And we were trying to launch our NFT and we couldn't. Nobody, The market wasn't there anymore. So um, the question remains, will the new digital economy stay or will it go bust? So I'll give you uh, an answer to, from two different perspectives. I think the first is like what's going on with the digital economy right now. And I feel that it's way over financialized. So it's extremely similar to the regular economy in that finance used to be 10%-ish of the entire uh, economy, like the real world economy. Now it's like 30 to 35, depending on who, who, who can count. My guess is NFT is probably 90%. So you're in this space where everything is just super, super overly financialized. That's a big problem. Stepping back though, the crash is fascinating because price is way down. But if you look at activity, it's about the same. In fact, yeah. right now there's a, there, there's a, there, there's a real clear kind of path where the, where the activity is actually growing. It's, it's, it's better than when it was, let's say back in March or April of this year. So it's price that's crashed. And I think that was mainly propped up by financial engineering. Yeah. You know, I kind of, I kind of see what you mean because as a, uh you know, blockchain supporter for, you know, over a decade, I've seen the supportive community is always there. Prices go up and down. You get the new hyped kind of like the newbie investors that jump in and throw their savings in, lose it all. But in the end, the community stays the same, right? We're always there. We know, we know it's a long-term situation. We know it's not short-term. So I think what you're saying is the long-term supporters are staying and maybe the new guys that maybe lost are just holding and waiting for the next rally. But, uh, you know, I, I think NFTs and blockchain are superb. And you, and you see the whole ownership kind of side of things, which is interesting because we've seen Decentraland and Sandbox, you know, really allowing you to purchase land now. And like people are building, I own a parcel on Sandbox, for example, and we're building kind of things for people to do there. What's your take on how that translates to the real world? Maybe tell some people like why it's such a great idea to be a part of that. So I think you have to go back 
hundreds and hundreds of years and look at property rights. So they came from land and land was this like weird thing. Like you could own land. That didn't make any sense. Kings and queens and churches own land and regular people just worked. Right. And (laughs) um, when, when land became something that individual people could own, a humongous amount of wealth was unlocked in the world. A similar thing happened with knowledge. So you can think of patents and trademarks and copyrights, these sorts of things as very, very strange abstract concepts that, that humanity has agreed that owning this uh, creates more wealth in the world. And okay, now we get to the digital age. We get to where we are now on the internet or maybe 20, 30, 40 years ago. And property rights were not extended. Everything that you do on the internet looks like a license agreement. You don't actually own things. And so my hypothesis, of course, I'm not unique here, is that if you could actually own digital things, then you could unlock another wave of wealth, that that, that the entire planet, the, the wealth uh, generating possibilities, in, including, of course, just the wealth we have right now, all of this could grow by many orders of magnitude. So I think that's the real bet, is that yeah. giving people ownership over well, really anything, um, is what actually fundamentally grows economies. Yeah, and tying a real-world product, let's say a a really famous painting by Van Gogh, and you own this painting, it's the only one in existence, and you tie that to the blockchain, and it has you know a transaction history selling between different dealers or whatnot. Uh, Is it really just having it, be a part of the blockchain as the the incentive here or are there additional incentives for making it part of the digital world yeah so it's actually really this concept of um ownership so i want to linger on the homes just for a moment because so you own a home that's a physical thing that's the asset but what actually unlocks the value of the home is known as a property title and that's in a registry somewhere so in the U.S., it's all county-based. They're all county registries. Right, the deeds. The deeds, yeah, and the titles. And so what those do is those organize the useful social and economic attributes of that asset. That's what allows the bank, for example, to give you a mortgage. They don't come to your home. The bank never shows up and checks out, right. hey, is your bathroom good or not? They just look <laughs> at the deed and they're like, yeah, That's all right, it. Jason, yeah. here's your money, right? And so- so it's this it's this layer of abstraction that is hundreds and hundreds of years old. It's not about the asset. It's about the the recording of the useful attributes of the asset into a system that people can organize around. And that's what the blockchain does. The blockchain right. is just a record-keeping system for people to organize and communicate and transact. And that's what's so amazing about it is because it's actually the first global system mm-hmm. that doesn't depend upon some particular... You know, whether it's a county clerk or a, a patent trademark office in some place, like it doesn't depend upon that. Anybody can use it. All right. So is it is it kind of like, um, you know, taking that deed for, say, for the house, right? I have a deed for a house and I want to digitize that on the blockchain. Are you saying that maybe I can attach it to an NFT and say this NFT is now worth X because my house is worth X. And if you purchase this NFT, you now own the deed to the house. Is that what you're saying the future is going? And then that kind of removes the paperwork and the notaries and like the lawyers and like the realtors and God knows what else is attributed to a house sale. It's kind of a nightmare with closing costs and whatnot. Is that what you're saying? Or is that way too far out? No, no, it's close. Um, 
What I would say is that one common trend in tech, if you look at the history of tech, is something starts off that's very expensive. You don't do it very much. Maybe only rich people do it. And through tech, some leverage is created that everyone can do it. It becomes universal and it becomes low cost. And so if you think of um, most people in the U.S., our most valuable asset is a home, if you own a home. And how many times do you actually buy and sell a home? Well, once or twice in your lifetime, right? right? And how come so much value is pent up in the home? Well, there's this really robust record-keeping system that people use to keep track of the ownership of the home. And then you can do stuff. You can collateralize that. You can borrow against it. You can line, get loans. Line of credits and stuff like that. Yeah. All that stuff. Yeah. And, um, and all of those attributes are only possible because of this property system. Mm. That's the only reason it works. If, if like everybody had to go to your place to be able to give you a loan, they had to inspect <laughs> it each time. They had to have different groups come to make sure that you weren't cheating. If, if that whole system was not there, None of this stuff would work. Right. And so so you can think of that as sort of directionally at least a flavor of, okay, well, what what would it mean if, well, not just your home, but like your toothbrush, like down to the level where it's almost like ludicrously small. Right. If you could organize the useful social and economic attributes of that asset. Interesting. So then you say, okay, well, what other assets? Like let's take a podcast, for example. Why can't people – um, own part of this podcast. What would that mean? How would that work? Um, yeah. how would that, you know, uh, how would that choo create choo other choosing, structures? It would like choose, they would choose the brands that would sponsor it, or they could choose the episode topics or the people that are interviewed if they own the piece of it, maybe. Right. Uh, I mean, that would be such an interesting way of, of expanding the economic opportunity and social opportunity for people around an asset. And I, and I guess that's where a DAO comes in, decentralized auto, autonomous organization. They could vote using a token on the blockchain to say this is the next episode, for example, right? Oh, not, like, of... Now you're getting way, way, way into the future. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm most obsessed with just this very, very simple idea of making these ownership records transparent to the world and low cost. So take a patent, right? So a group of people get together they have an invention. They file a patent on it. That might cost you $100,000 in the U.S. alone. It might Crazy. take you three or four years at least. Now you have to go file that in 26 different countries. Oh, Jesus. So so <laughs> what if you could do that online instantly by registering those ideas into some sort of system like a blockchain, for example, blockchain. that people yeah. could organize around? So. So these these structures for land ownership, for intellectual property ownership, these are really expensive and they're very, very local based. So as we move to digital economy, uh, an internet based world, being able to simply take those ideas of organizing attributes around an asset, make them low cost, make it programmable, that's huge. Mm -hmm. Now, the way people organize will change. And that's where things like DAOs are super interesting because those are just ways of organizing people. Right. Um, corporations are how we organize most, most economic activity now, but that's really old. I mean, the corporation, there hasn't been much innovation at all for quite some time on the corporation. So it's, it's, it's exciting when you think of programmable corporations, when you think of people being able to make corporations of two people of three people of four people like that are distributed around the whole world these are all ideas that are possible once you make um, the recording of the rights and the recording of the ownership very clear 
and very low cost. Love it. I see yeah. you're, you're a veteran entrepreneur. I mean, you started, I mean, I thought, which was really cool, you started uh, an open source hardware platform, OpenMoco, that was like the first open source phone before the iPhone and the Android. I mean, I've heard stories. I mean, I had the brick, I had the Motorola phone along, you know, years and years ago, but I never really got into like building that. What was that like building something before it became mainstream? Yeah, that was a crazy, crazy project. So I was actually an engineer working on a phone and we had to do everything from scratch. And it just dumbfounded me. Like, why wouldn't people just use Linux for this kind of thing? So that was the impetus to start OpenMoco. And then I had sort of the naive idea that you could just take existing hardware and port your software and get it to work on it. So we actually had to develop our own hardware and then we had to develop our own manufacturing capabilities. Jesus. It was crazy. Yeah, yeah I'm not, I'm not even, let's not even get into that. It's a yeah. whole other episode. <laughs> uh, so what, overall, I mean, you started Autonomy, you started Bitmark, you have all these different startups and different kind of concepts that do things in the digital age. What were the most challenging aspects that entrepreneurs could have potentially learned from? Do you know the most challenging thing is my ideas, they start off as not businesses. They start off as like, hey, this thing needs to exist in the world and nobody's building it, so let's go build it. And then it's like, how do you figure out what is the business model that can support this innovation? And then what type of people do you need to to bring that to the world? What's the structure? So, so, really, so I always find myself in that stage. Yeah, you're really saying, you know, you, you're finding a gap in the market or a pain point that you want to solve. Then you're, yeah. you're identifying the market, you're, you're, tar- you're validating the concept, figuring out the monetization, the revenue streams, and then putting together a fantastic team to help you get this thing and bring it to life. Um, it's t- typical startup uh, stuff, and I, I think it's fantastic. People need to get to drill it in their heads because most people just skip all that and just start pouring money into something without validating the concept yeah yeah like somebody the other day i was talking to him and he said he wanted to be an entrepreneur and i looked at him like that makes no sense to me it's like well what do you what do you want to make like what what's the change you want to see in the world and do you do you want that enough that you're willing to eat shit for 10 years yep right and and if the answer is no well then go work for somebody that's doing something amazing i always tell people entrepreneurship isn't like a thing you do it's a lifestyle you have to integrate into your life you know it's an everyday thing it's goal setting it's a mindset it's not like oh i'm gonna go be an entrepreneur yeah you got you got to build on something you know and then eventually you'll become one Um, exactly where can can people find out more about your plethora of projects and what it is you do and how they can use your platforms or hardware well i guess Probably Twitter is the easiest place to reach me personally. Um, if you are into digital art, uh, we're working on two amazing projects right now. One is called Feral File, and Feral File is is sort of a gallery slash publisher, and it's trying to fix some really, I would call it structural issues with the art industry, with the art ecosystem as a whole. And then we're also working on a digital art wallet. So I think this is the first. Um, every crypto wallet to date is built from the perspective of DeFi and the financial side. Yeah. Autonomy is built from the perspective of the art side of the NFT. Okay. So we flip the whole perspective. And how do you bring this with you in your daily life? How do you experience it? How do you actually see it on the phone as, a, as opposed to having to log into a web browser on your laptop? Right. 
Yeah. And so these two projects, um, if they're interesting, please give it a try. We'd love some feedback. They're both in early stages. They're both like Feral Files about two years into development. Autonomy is almost a year. And um, this is where most of my time is spent right now is really thinking about how to build better tools and better rights for people that are creating things in the digital economy. Again, like I have no problem with the financialization of, of the economy. I just don't want it to be such a high percentage of what's happening. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. Awesome. So bitmark.com is the website and uh, Sean, this was fantastic. You have another website you want to add or. Yeah. Please look at feralfile.com and also look at autonomy.io. I think it's easier to understand bitmark through feralfile and autonomy than just going to bitmark. Um, Bitmark is almost like the substrate for the ideas that we create. And and these ideas, these products, they should be standalone. That's how we view them at least. Like these these are the story we want to tell people. Perfect, Sean. I'll add all three in the show notes for all you guys listening. Hope you learned something about the digital economy. And as always, we will see you guys in the next episode. Hope you enjoyed the episode. If you learned something today, please support this podcast by subscribing to it, sharing it with your friends, and leaving a five-star review. You can learn more about me at jasonsherman.org, where you'll find information about my book, also called Strap on Your Boots, available on Amazon, as well as my course called Startup Essentials on Udemy or Skillshare. I'll see you in next week's episode.